this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. I want to just share a, a word with you from 1 Peter chapter 2 about becoming living stones in the Lord. And uh, we live in a society, if you can just bring up that next slide, um, that has this attitude. Don't just be another brick in the wall. And we live in a very fiercely independent society, a, a society that's very autonomous and that values autonomy um, and and uh, uniqueness, um, and that resists any form of conformity whatsoever. And um, the reality is, however, we cannot choose whether we want to conform or not. We can only choose what we're going to conform to. This whole idea that we have that somehow we're islands independent from anyone and anything else and that we're living our own lives unaffected by those around us is an illusion. It's a myth. It's not possible. No one can live like that. In the beginning, in your early years, your family forms you. And in your latter years, your friends form you. But to think that, that we're not conforming in some way is an illusion. It's a dream. We can only choose what we conform to. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, when, when we talk about living stones, bricks, etc., bricks in the wall, the most useless brick is the brick that's lying there on the ground by itself. <laughs> I mean, come on, bricks are made <laughs> to build with. And we, as human beings, are made for community. And we see that in the sense that we are created in the image of God. And the God in whose image we are created is a triune God. He's a divine community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the beginning, God was a divine family. You cannot reduce God to less than a community. And we were created in His image because we were also created for community. To be like Him. And that's why, um, you know, the, the, the whole idea... Um, of, you know, don't just be another brick in the wall. You're going to conform to something. I mean, let me just give you an example. You know, you, you, you know some kids go through teenage years and they, they go through, you know, they come disappointed or disillusioned with their family and they rebel and, you know, maybe they come from a conservative family and then they rebel and they become, they go into this emo, you know, scene, you know, and they put on black makeup and make their hair black and they wear black clothes and, you know, make their nails black. And, 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 and they'll say, like, some of you are smiling. Maybe some of you were there. <laughs> right? And say, oh, you know, we, we're being independent. We're being rebellious. We're not conforming. And you look at a group of them and you think, really? <laughs> I mean, you all look the same. You all have black makeup. You all have black hair. You're all wearing black clothes. You, you really think you're not, you're not conforming? You're just not conforming to your family anymore, but you're conforming to a new group. And it's like that for us. And so this idea, you know, don't just be another brick in the wall. Bricks were meant to be built into walls. The most useless brick in the world is the brick lying there all by itself. You know, take a stack of bricks and throw them in a pile and see what happens. In a couple of days, especially in Joburg, they'll be stolen. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Bricks were meant to be built into walls. So 
the point is you cannot choose whether you want to be a brick in the wall. You can only choose which wall you want to be a part of. And what I want to share with you this morning is about a wall you definitely want to be a part of. In 1 Peter 2 verse 4 to 5 it says, As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if you just keep that scripture up there, I just see sort of, I'm going to draw out four main points from the scripture. The first is, it says, as you come to him. So the first thing we're going to talk about is that we must come to him. We come to him. And as we come to him, it says, the living stone, as we come to him, the living stone, as you come to him, the living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built. In other words, as we come to him, the living stone, we become like him. We become living stones. So we come to him and then we become like him. And then the third thing is, um, we like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. In other words, we are built by him. The third point, we are built by him. And then finally, to offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable uh, to God through Christ Jesus. In other words, we sacrifice through him. We become like him. We, we come to him. We become like him. We are built by him. And we sacrifice through him. Now, I won't um, actually get... Uh, to all four points today. You guys know me by now. Those who know me won't be surprised. I I might get to the first two and maybe the third one. Uh, We'll see. And then I'll continue some other time. So it says, as you come to him, the living stone. And it's interesting that he's a living stone. Why is he a living stone? There's a lot there. And I, I, I can actually unpack that. You know, there's a lot I can say about that. But I just want to say a few things. In the next phrase it says, as you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. And later on, when when Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, he says, God says, he quotes God as saying, I lay a stone in Zion, in other words in Jerusalem, a cornerstone, a, a chosen and precious cornerstone I lay in Zion. How does God lay that cornerstone in Zion? Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. It's on the cross, right? That's where God laid the cornerstone in Zion. God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world. And the way in which He laid Him as the foundation, the cornerstone, for everything else to be built on, is by Jesus being rejected by men, suffering, even dying on the cross for crimes he had not committed, dying for the sins of others. See, that's the the thing that makes Christianity so different from every other religion. Every other religion is, I come to God to present him with a righteous record. Christianity is, I come to God and He gives me a righteous record. It's a big difference. That's the difference between religion and relationship. That's the difference between dead religion and Christianity. That's the difference between man trying to reach God and God reaching out and saving man. That's the difference. In other words, 
He's a living stone because he was rejected by men, killed by men, but he also rose again. He's a living stone. He's resurrected. His grave is still empty. You know, it's a historic fact that the Christians, within a couple of years of Jesus' resurrection, they lost the grave. I mean, if you go to Jerusalem now, you'll, you'll obviously find, you know, tour guides and stuff that'll take you around and say, you know, here was the grave. But others will say, no, there it was. No, 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 this is the real grave. The, the point is they don't know. <laughs> they don't know where the grave is. They know where Muhammad's grave is. They know where all the other, you know, great men and, and women's graves are. Why did they forget where the grave is? Why did they lose the grave? Because the body's not there anymore. <laughs> right? It's like, you know, when, when, you, when you're a parent and you have a child and you walk into your child's room, I mean, you don't get sentimental about it. You usually get frustrated, right? Clothes lying on the floor, toys all around. And it's like, come on, can't you clean this place? But if that child dies... All of a sudden, you don't want to touch anything. You don't want to change anything. You don't want to move the clothes and the toys around. You, you come in there and you want to weep. And you're just like, ah, yeah, I was such a messy boy. You know, oh, I miss him so much. It, in, all of a sudden, that room becomes sacred almost, sentimental. Why? Because the child is gone. And, and that's what you have. That's the only thing you have to remember the child by is that room. You don't want to change anything. It, it feels sacred to you. But while the child's there, I mean, you don't care. You know, you change everything. The, the, the room means nothing while the child is there. And that's why the grave meant nothing to the early Christians. Jesus wasn't there. He was risen. They didn't need a grave to remember him by. The grave didn't have sentimental value. He wasn't there. He was risen. He's a living stone. It says, um, as you come to him... The living stone. What does what it mean? What, what does that as you come to him mean? What does that refer to as you come to him, that phrase? Now, I'm, I'm just going to um, read, and, and you're welcome to either follow in your own Bible or, or just listen as, as I read. Um, I'm just going to read a few verses before and after from the end of, of chapter 1. If I can find Peter. Here we go. <laughs> He's hiding here at the end of the New Testament. <laughs> okay. I'm going to read from 1 Peter 1, verse 22, and then, and then to chapter 2, verse 12, and just um, show you how many times Peter comes again and again, just in different words, it comes back to the same idea of coming to him, and describes it in different ways, and, and all these parallel ways of describing actually interpret it to us and, and explain it to us. So in verse 22 it says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love, for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. So the first thing he says, as you have, uh, now that you have obeyed the truth. You've obeyed the truth. So, so coming to him means obeying the truth. Coming to him is not just hearing the truth. That's very important. Coming to him is not just hearing the truth. There are many people who hear the truth and do nothing about it. There are many people who hear the truth, but it doesn't touch their hearts. There are many people who hear the truth, but they don't build their lives upon it. Coming to him doesn't mean hearing the truth. Coming to him means obeying the truth. Saying, I'm going to respond to the truth. And the reality is, like one guy said, the truth that mankind needs to hear is for the most part 
the truth that mankind doesn't want to hear. And that's why so much of mankind rejects the truth and doesn't obey it, even when they do hear it. So coming to Jesus is not just hearing the truth, it's obeying the truth. And then in verse 23, it goes on and it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So coming to him means being born again. So coming to him is not just, oh, I find out what his address is, I find out where he lives, and then I go and visit him. Coming to Jesus is something much more radical than that. It's being born again. Coming to Jesus means a brand new beginning. There's a fundamental change that happens in your life. You get born again. And it's born again of an imperishable seed. And there's a, there's a picture here of, you know, of, um, you know, there's actually a play on words here in terms of seed as in seed for plants, but also seed, the, the seed of a, of a husband, you know, sperm. And he says, you're born of perishable seed, but you're born again of imperishable seed. You're born, and because it's of perishable seed, you perish. But if you're born again of imperishable seed, you are imperishable. Or like the old saying goes, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So coming to him is being born again. It's being born again. Of what? What is this imperishable seed? It tells us here in this verse, through the living and enduring word of God, the living and enduring word of God. That is the imperishable seed. That is, as it were, God's seed that causes us to be born again. Even as I'm speaking this morning to you from the word of God, that is, that is the seed. Now is a good time to get born again if you need to. <laughs> God's imperishable seed is here. Um, and it, it's interesting, it says the living, through the living and enduring word of God. Living word. It's only a living word that can produce living stones. And God's word is a living word. And then he quotes from the Old Testament in, in Isaiah. He says, um, all men are like uh, grass and all the, their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And he talks about two things there. He says, the eternal word, on the one hand, is, then he quotes from the Old Testament. In other words, in, in that time, the New Testament didn't exist yet, except a few you know, loose letters floating around you know, and being copied you know, amongst the churches. But we, we didn't have the New Testament as we have it today. We, we had the Old Testament. So when he talks about the eternal word of God, he's saying, and he quotes from the Old Testament, he's, obviously he's saying, I'm, I'm referring to Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture, the Scriptures of those days. Of that day. That's what I'm talking about when I say the living and enduring word of God. But then he goes on and he says, This is the word that was preached to you. This is the word that was preached to you. And, and you won't see it in, in the English translation, but literally when it says preached, it, it uses the Greek ver, ver, verb, you might be able to connect it to an English verb. You know, well, what's the English verb you would associate with that? What does it sound like? evangelize right it literally means to preach the gospel or to preach good news so when it says the living and abiding word it's not only the written word of scripture it's also the preaching of the gospel 
That's the living word by which, the imperishable seed by which you are born again. And then it says, it goes on and it says in verse, chapter 2 verse 1, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, for all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Notice he's just talked about being born again and now he talks about newborn babies. So that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's the thing, I want you to see the progression. The living word from scripture that is preached as the gospel, but even that is not enough. You need to taste that the Lord is good. You need to taste that the Lord is good. You need to experience what the word says. It's not enough to read it in scripture. It's not enough to hear it preached as the gospel. You've got to taste not the word, you've got to taste that the Lord is good. Can you hear an Old Testament scripture echoing in the background of that? Since you have tasted that the Lord is good. What, what's the scripture that comes to mind? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who hope in Him. I thirst for God, the living God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the scripture echoing in the background. And we know that that's echoing in the background because in the next chapter, I think in chapter, two, uh, chapter 3 of, of 1 Peter, Peter actually quotes more extensively from that psalm, Psalm uh, 34. This is Psalm 34 verse 8. But, but here's the thing. You've got to taste that the Lord is good. Through the written word that is preached as the gospel, you've got to taste, not just the word, but the God who speaks this word. Now, now, you need to get this. this is, in other words, this is not just a cognitive hearing of the word. This is experiential tasting of the word. You know, so often, you know, you, you, you see these shows on TV, these um, cooking shows. Okay? And people try, on those shows, they try and explain, you know, they try and make the food sound so nice, and they make the food and they show you how it looks and so on. But imagine trying to do that over the radio. We had no visuals. And they were tasting the food and making the food and trying to make it sound nice. Now that's what Peter's trying to do here. He doesn't have visuals to show you, but he's trying to create, he's trying to make you salivate. (laughs) He's trying to make you hungry and thirsty for God. He wants you to to want to taste God. And he's saying through his word you can taste him, you can experience him. Now, here's the thing. We have five senses. Now, technically, you know, nowadays they say you have eight senses, but let's not get into that. Traditionally, you have five senses. Okay. (laughs) The OTs and stuff, yeah, will know what I'm talking about. Um, You have five senses, okay? But when you when you When you see something, say I I had an apple here. I don't have an apple, but say I had an apple here. If I see the apple, I see light bouncing off the apple and coming into my eyes. Right? If I smell the apple, I smell air that carries the fragrance of the apple. If I feel the apple, I can feel like it's smooth or, you know, how 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 it feels to the touch. You know, if I throw it up in the air and I catch it, I can hear, you know, maybe it being caught. But when I taste it, when I take a bite from the apple, a part of the apple 
goes into me and becomes part of me. Taste is the only sense that causes you, that which you taste, to become part of you. Where you ingest, where you take in that which you taste. Taste that the Lord is good. In other words, experience Him in such a way that He becomes part of you. Part of Him becomes part of you. Can you see what Peter is saying here? Coming to Jesus, coming to the living stone is not just hearing. It's, it's, it's actually experiencing Him, tasting Him. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offer, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And there the living stone is identified as Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's the next one. How do you come to him? You trust in him. You trust in him. Now, here I also just want to say, it says here, I laid a, I laid a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now, to understand what it's saying there is, um, you've got to just look a bit deeper, and, and I wish I had more time to go into it, but I just want to give you a few tips, you know, so that you can just see what's going on here and, and just go and savor it for yourself at home. But what's going on here is this, uh, Isaiah, whom Peter is quoting, is saying, uh, God says, I lay in Zion a stone. I lay a stone in Zion. But this is a strange stone. Because in the, in the third phrase it says, the one who trusts in him. The one who trusts in him. In other words, this stone that is being laid in Zion is no ordinary stone. It's a him. It's not a it. It's a him and you should trust in him. And it's by trusting in him that you come to him. Uh, now to understand this, this wordplay here, and it's a wordplay that Jesus also uses in the Gospels, in his parables, and that, that um, Isaiah, who wrote, Jesus, Jesus spoke obviously in Hebrew or Aramaic, Isaiah wrote originally in, in, in Hebrew. The, even in English, the, the word stone and the word sun are close together. Three of the five letters of stone appear in sun, Right? Now, in, in Hebrew, it's even closer. The, the, um, the word for son is ben, like in Benjamin, son of my right hand, ben. Okay? The word for stone is eben. It just has an e at the front. And so there's a word play going on here. When he says, I lay a stone in Zion, he's saying, I'm laying a son in Zion, and you must trust in him. You come to this stone who is a son by trusting in him. And the next um, verses say, say something similar. It says in verse 7, And to you who believe, this stone is precious, because you realize it's not just a stone. He's the Son. To you who believe. You come to Him by believing in Him. In other words, this stone becomes the foundation. How do you trust in Him? You build your life on Him. You build your life on Him. That's how you come to Him. You trust Him and build your life on Him. Do you believe the stone is precious? But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that, makes, that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. Maybe he said in the beginning, you obey the truth. Now in contrast, those 
who, who, who don't believe, they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How do you come to him? By being called by him out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You come to him by being called. There's a, there's, when you hear this imperishable word of, 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 of scripture preached in the gospel, within that general call of scripture, there's a special call by God calling you out of darkness into light. Now scripture often says that, that those who are in the world are blind. Now if a blind man is sitting in a dark room and you switch on the light for him, does that help him? So the darkness being spoken about here is not just there's a light that needs to be switched on. It's blindness. When he called you out of darkness, he was calling you out of the darkness of blindness that prevented you from seeing the truth and responding to the truth into his marvelous light. That's how you come to him. And the gospel does that. The gospel has the power to do that. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's another explanation of what it means to come to him. It means receiving mercy. What is mercy? What is mercy? When you think about the word mercy, when I think about the word mercy, I always think about someone who's committed some crime, you know, and they've been caught out and they're thrown before the judge or the king or whoever's standing in judgment over them. And what do they say? Have, have mercy on me. I'm, I'm guilty, but don't give me what I deserve. In other words, mer- when you come to him, you come as a guilty criminal, but you don't, you don't receive the punishment you deserve. You receive mercy instead. You don't receive the judgment you deserve. You receive mercy instead. And, and let's be honest with ourselves. All of us come needing mercy. All of us come needing mercy. And, and you know, people say, you know, in the Old Testament there, were, there was the law and there were high standards. But in the New Testament, you know, it's, it's just grace and there are no standards. No, 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 hang on. <laughs> The New Testament, the standards are higher. In the Old Testament, it said, you shall not commit adultery. You know what Jesus said? If you just look at a woman to lust after, you've already committed adultery in your heart. In the Old Testament, it says, you shall not commit murder. You know what Jesus says? If you anger at your brother without a cause, you're a murderer in your heart. You're already guilty. That was Jesus is saying that the, the true meaning of the Old Testament external law is an internal reality. And, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know. We know we're all guilty. We know. And if you know that you have to stand before a holy God on judgment day, that will concern you. But the good news is, the good news is, that this God who is a holy judge is also a merciful judge. And He's willing to give mercy to us. He's willing to not give us the punishment we deserve if we come to him, if we come to Jesus, if we come to Jesus. You know, I, I just, 
in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll share that later. Okay, so we come to him. Um, yes, we, co- we come to him and then we become like him. We become living stones just as he's a living stone. In other words, as we come to him, we become like him. As we come to him, we become like him. Okay, say to your neighbor, as I come to him, I become like him. That's what he means when he says, you also like living stones. He says, as you come to the living stone, you also like living stones. Now, there's the only way to become a... Um, to become a living stone is to come to the living stone, Jesus. And he's rejected by men, but chosen by God, and so are we. We are a, in chapter 2 verse 9 it says, we are a chosen people. And later on it goes on to say, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Why? Because you're rejected by the world. You don't belong in this world. To abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. That's in verse 11. Verse 12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now the the reality is that much of the church has not lived such good lives. He says, Live such good lives become like him to such an extent that even though people who do not believe accuse you of wrongdoing, they will eventually have to, say, have to glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, become to, like him. Now the reality is the church hasn't always become like him. Why? I mean, there are many churches where there are many people sitting who are not like Jesus at all. And they've been sitting in church for years. And you re- know the reason why they haven't become like him? Because they've never come to him. Because there are so many churches where the gospel isn't preached. Seriously. There are so many churches where there are people who call themselves Christians, but they're just Christian in name. They've never been born again. That miracle of regeneration hasn't happened in their hearts. They've never actually tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They've heard the truth, but they haven't obeyed the truth. They haven't received mercy. They haven't come to him, and so they haven't become like him and so the world looks at the church and says, but bunch of hypocrites. And I can understand, honestly, I can understand when you look at, at certain parts of the church, why the world would say that. Let's be honest. Look, look at church history. It's full of people who haven't become like him because they haven't come to him and they've misrepresented him. And, and, and people in the world look at them and they're disappointed, they're disillusioned. I say, if this is what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. And I can understand that. And maybe that's some of you this morning. Maybe you've seen people, maybe you've seen Christians, maybe your family were Christians, and, and you look at them and, and you're just disappointed and disillusioned. And you think, really? Is that it? Is that what Christianity is? And what I want to say to you is, don't judge Christianity on the misrepresentation Of the church. Don't judge God. Don't judge Jesus on the way that his followers often misrepresent him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you look at people, you'll always be disappointed. But you, you need to look at God. It's not the church that saves you. The church isn't perfect, it'll never be perfect. 
It's God that saves you. It's by tasting that God is good that you are saved. The reality is we often fall short of God's glory. No matter how we try, how hard we try. And if you judge Christianity by Christians, you will be disappointed. But if you judge Christianity by Christ, you will not. And He's the Savior. Christ is the Savior. Christians are not the Savior. So it says, um, it's interesting, it says, rejected by men, chosen by God. In, in, in the very first verse of, of 1 Peter, um, it says, let me just read that to you. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, etc., to God's elect, strangers in the world. That word strange is actually a, a bit of a watering down. It actually means exiles. Those who, are, who don't belong in the world, those who are rejected by the world. So we are the elected rejected. We are the elected rejected. Rejected by man, but elected, chosen by God. We are the elected rejected. Okay, and, and, and here's the encouragement, because Peter's writing to guys who are suffering persecution and being rejected and, and marginalized, and, and more and more that's going to happen to Christians. Okay, We've been very comfortable in the West, in most of the West. It's not going to last, people. More and more we're going to be rejected. And he's writing to persecuted Christians, and he says, listen here, you're the elected rejected. And remember that you were elected before you were rejected. Remember that it's because you are chosen by God that you are rejected by man, just like with Jesus. It's because you become like him that you are rejected like him. Be encouraged by that. And he says in, 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 in chapter 1 verse 22 um, that you must love one another. Now that you've been purified by obeying the truth, you must love one another, love one another deeply from the heart. Why? Because he has loved you deeply from the heart. Because he has loved you in that way, you must love one another in that way. Become like him. When you come to him, you become like him. You love deeply. Jesus himself said, By this will men, all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That should characterize the church more than anything else. And in, in, in chapter 2 verse 1, he then says, Rid yourselves. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. In other words, love one another deeply by getting rid of those things that will not make the people around you feel loved. Like malice, and slander, and envy. Get rid of those things that are unloving. Get rid of those things out of your life. Now, we don't often stand still at sin lists, so I'm going to take just a few moments just to go through this sin list and let it, let it convict us, let it convict me a bit, and I hope some of you will be convicted with me. We love deeply by ridding ourselves of malice. What is malice? Malice is a desire to hurt or harm someone with words or deeds. Now, one thing I want you to see that all of these sins have in common is that they destroy community. And Jesus is saying, become like me by destroying the sins that would destroy community. Become like me by destroying the sins that would destroy this 
this spiritual house that I'm building. Destroy those sins that would destroy the house. So malice is, is to hurt or harm someone with words or deeds. And, and if, if, someone, if you have malice in your heart towards someone, then that someone cannot trust you. Because, because of the malice, because you want to harm them, because you don't have their best interest at heart, because you don't love them. Guile, in the NIV it says deceit, but it's a bit of a flat word. Guile is actually a better word, but it's an old word. What does guile mean? Guile means a desire to gain some advantage by deceiving others. That's guile. The desire to gain advantage by deceiving others. And if, so, if, if you find out someone's trying to just use you to gain some advantage by actually deceiving you, you cannot trust them and community breaks down. Hypocrisy. A desire to be known for what you are not. A desire to be known. In other words, a constantly putting the best foot forward. That convicts me. <laughs> I don't know if it convicts you, but it convicts me. I know most of you don't see me at my worst. If you want to know what I'm really like, and ask my wife and my children. They see me at my best and my worst. Don't think that what you see in the pulpit is, is who I really am. It's, it's just a, a, a very small portion of who I am. And please don't put me on a pedestal because I don't deserve it. So hypocrisy is pretense. And here's the thing. It destroys community because if you're a hypocrite, if, you, if, you, if you're pretending to be what you are not, if you have a desire to no, be known for what you are not, people cannot know you. They cannot know the real you. They cannot be authentic community because of the pretense. Envy, a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to another. You know what that does? It destroys celebration. I can't celebrate with you for your successes because I'm actually, I, I wish I had that success. And, I, and actually, you know, you know, behind closed doors, I'm grumbling. Why, why does he always get all the good jobs? And why does he always get all, all the opportunities? And look at me, you know. God, you know, what about me, God? And I can't celebrate you because I'm envious of what God is doing in your life. It destroys community. Slander, a desire for vengeance through false accusation. Gossip, backbiting. It breaks down trust. You know, you cannot trust someone that gossips, even if they're not gossiping about you. Hello? Because if someone gossips to me about you, then I'm thinking, okay, what is he saying about me behind my back? If he says this about you behind your back, what is he saying about me behind my back? I cannot trust him. It breaks down community. So what, what, what Peter is saying here is become like Jesus by destroying the sins that would destroy community. And he says, grow up into your salvation. How? He says, as newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. What is this pure spiritual milk? Pure, the word pure there is, is um, the exact opposite of malice. So he starts the list in verse 1 with malice, which is the general overarching description of these sins. All of them are expressions of malice. And then he says, no, desire the pure spiritual milk, the unadulterated, the undefiled, the unmalice, the virtuous spiritual milk. That is the opposite of malice. It says there's spiritual milk, but it's a, it's a word that's very difficult to translate. It only appears twice in the New Testament. And the best translation, I don't want to get 
into where I get it from. But the best translation is that which is true to nature, true to, to the real nature. In other words, desire the pure, the undefiled milk that is true to your nature, your new nature. Remember he said, be born again. And then he says, as newborn babies, desire the pure spiritual milk. What is it? It's the word of God, the written word, by the, the living and enduring word by which you're born again. It's the word, the gospel that is preached to you. But what is it more? In the very next verse, where it says, crave the pure spiritual milk, the very next verse it says, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. The pure spiritual milk is not just the word of God, it's the experience of God himself. It's the experience of God himself. And I had a wonderful quote from um, A.W. Tozer that I now actually forgot at home or in my, in my bag. But, he, but Tozer says, you know, biblical exposition is an imperative must in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no church can be a New Testament church in the true sense of the word without accurate biblical exposition. But then he says, but biblical exposition can be carried out in such a way that the hearers are no better off despite having heard the biblical word explained and taught to them. And he says, until, unless they have tasted, until they have tasted from God himself, tasted that sweetness of God himself in the very innermost of their beings, they are not better off for having heard the word. Now the pure spiritual milk and the picture here is you've been born again of God, of the seed of God, and now the picture of God as a mother putting you to his breast. And you're drinking from God himself, from, from, from the breast, tasting God, tasting God himself. And he says, crave pure spiritual milk. Have you ever seen a newborn baby and how it craves milk? Once it's tasted it, it wants just one thing. It'll scream, it'll kick, it'll shout as loud as it needs to because it craves milk. And if you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you have tasted of God himself, you will also crave the pure spiritual milk of God himself. Because that is what nourishes you. Because now your na God's nature has become your nature. You've become like Jesus. Um, you know, I think of, of scriptures like, um, what's that song, that hymn? As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longs after you. From, from Psalm 42 verse 1. And it goes on to say, I thirst for God, the living God. I thirst for God, the living God. And deers, they don't have a high tolerance for not having water. You know, if they wander around the desert, they get thirsty very quickly and they get really thirsty and they need water. And I, I had a good laugh this week because um, John Piper says, you know, some Christians say, but, but I'm not a deer Christian. I'm a camel Christian. I've been in this desert so long, I just plod along through the desert. You know, I have a hump. You know, I only, I only have to come to church once a month and I only have to read my Bible twice a month and I only have to pray three times a month. I'm a camel Christian. I can handle the desert. And it's dry. Yes, I know it's dry, but I can handle it because I'm a camel. I just plod along in the desert. For crying out loud, don't be a camel Christian. Become a dear Christian. Become thirsty. 
The reason God allows you to experience the desert is so you can become thirsty for Him. Don't experience the, don't pay the price of the desert without gaining the prize of the desert. Don't suffer the desert without experiencing the reward of the desert. What is the reward of the desert? Becoming thirsty for God. That is the reward. Because that is what we need. We need to like newborn babies crave the spiritual milk so we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. One last thing. I'm a bit over time, so I'm, I'm, I'm ending with this. He says, as we come to him, we become like him and we are built by him into a spiritual house. So this spiritual house, what does that mean? It means it's not a physical house. It means this is not the temple, this building. It means the church buildings all across Joburg, you know, with their steeples, whether they're steeples or not. They are not the spiritual house. They are not the church. They are not the temple. It's a spiritual house built of living stones, which we are. In other words, we are the church. We are the temple. We are the spiritual house. But where is that spiritual house? You know, the temple used to be in Jerusalem, and that used to be the only place where believers could come to worship or bring their sacrifices. Only in Jerusalem, at the temple. That was the the house of God, where you had to come to worship. You could worship at no other place. Where's this spiritual house? He says to, to them, you know, as you come to the living stone, you as living stones are being built together as a spiritual house for God. To whom is he speaking? Where are they? Let me read the beginning of the, of the book for you. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's talking to believers who are scattered all across the world. And he mentions a few of the Roman provinces provinces where they are scattered. In other words, this spiritual house, which in the old covenant used to be centered in Jerusalem, has now been radically decentralized. And the spiritual house, the temple of God, covers the earth. It's scattered across the earth. Isn't that amazing? And we are that house. We are that house. So in closing, it is only if we come to him that we can become like him and that, he can build, that we can be built by him and sacrificed through him. And, and here's the main thing I, I want to leave you with. Just like a newborn baby, by drinking its mo- mother's milk, develops a healthy appetite for that milk and starts craving that milk, my question to you is, are you growing up in your salvation by craving the pure spiritual milk? God's word, yes, his written word, his preached word, but also God himself, the experience of God through his word. Do you crave that? Have you developed a healthy appetite for God? Are you hungry for God? Can you say like Psalm 42 verse 1, as the deep pants for the water. My soul thirsts for you. My, th- my soul pants for your God. I thirst for God, the living God. God, I, I'm thirsty for you. Can you say that? Are you developing a healthy thirst? Are you, are you developing a desperation for God? Lauren preached about that last week, and I really believe it's a word in season. 
We need to be hungry and thirsty for God. And if you're here this, this morning and, and you have not yet come to Him, you know, because maybe you see the church and, and, and we the church are not everything that we should be. Maybe many Christians have let you down. All I want to ask you is, be wise enough to look away from us and look to the one that we should be like, that we should represent. Look away from our misrepresentation and look to him because he can save you. Don't, don't base your eternity, your eternal destiny. Don't make your decision on someone's misrepresentation of Jesus. Base it on Jesus himself. Jesus who died for you. Jesus who died for you. Jesus who died for you knowing how fallen you are. Jesus who died for you knowing how sinful you are. Jesus who died for you knowing that you didn't deserve it. Jesus who died for you and who loved you. I mean, imagine the love that must have driven him to the cross to die for people like us. Look to him and be saved. Father God, we just come to you this morning in Jesus' name and we want to thank you, Lord, for your grace. And thank you, Lord, that, that we can come to you, Jesus, the living stone. Thank you that we can come to you and be born again. Thank you that we can come to you and be changed to become like you. Thank you that we can come even if we don't deserve it. Thank you that we can come as we are to receive mercy. Thank you that you love us that much. And Lord, I just want to pray, Lord, over every person here this morning, Lord, that we will really come, that we will keep coming, and that we will develop, Lord, like newborn babies, such a desperate hunger and appetite for your word and for you. Lord, I want to pray, Lord, that every one of us will taste that the Lord is good.